Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Michael, head of development at Win Technologies, a proud member of the Betway Group. And we discuss several unconventional use cases for feature management. Why Michael chooses Launch Darkly for his feature management purposes, and tips for having successful one-on-ones with your direct reports. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I've always been interested in technology. Um, my dad designed microchips, so kind of from a young age, I've always been interested in technology. Um, and I thought, well, you know what, I, I enjoy it. And that's what I ended up going to university to study was um, electrical and electronic engineering. But there was um, a module within that, which was actually uh, programming. And I found programming much more interesting and kind of rewarding to me as something to kind of, you've got a problem, write some code, execute it, it runs, it solves your problem. Uh, that was to me more rewarding than doing Fourier transforms and figuring out resistance and capacitance of components within a physical thing. Um, and then, yeah, moved into software from there, really, and started off on the front end, um, got a job Win Technologies, which is a proud member of the Betway Group, which is the, the company that I'm still at. That was kind of seven and a half years ago. Um, and then moved on to a, uh, a leadership role um, after 18 months or so on, on a team more focused on the back end. So kind of upskilled in, in the back end tech. Um, and since then, I've kind of been involved in the, the full stack of, of web development and have progressed through a number of roles uh, through architecture into head of development. Uh, which is the role I now have. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I totally get um, how you can see more value in the software engineering than like physical electrical engineering. There is this uh, guy at a company called Quake Technologies I interviewed a while back. No, Joel interviewed him. Uh, but anyway, they're they're making really cool stuff. They're making AR for firefighters that like, outlines the room that they're in through the smoke so it helps them like see what they're doing in low visibility scenarios but yeah he was talking about how it's so challenging on the hardware engineering side of things because when you're producing a physical product it's like a hundred thousand dollars if you want to move a button to the other side of the thing so you really have to get that right whereas in software you can just run it oh that didn't work let me change something run it again like yeah <laughs> Absolutely. And I think there's an element of that, which I really enjoy. It's because I, I, I'm not so hands-on software now as I used to be, um, but in my personal time, I am. And it, it's great in that way that, that software we can play around with as a hobby with you kind of investing time rather than actually spending, as you say, kind of hundreds of thousands on, on, on moving something around, which is in software, the idea of being able to move something around or re-architecting something, rerouting stuff, it's not free, but equally, you're not having to pay for a resource to, to do that in the same way that you are with hardware, um, which, is, which is great for figuring out what actually is the best way to, what is the best option for customers and the best design for a system. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of, what kind of stuff are you building in your free time? Um, so I run a, a, it's a, a wallpaper website. So it's, what I like about being able to do that is because I'm not hands-on and, and actually because I was, 
and more experienced in .NET because of when I moved to kind of back-end teams rather than front-end, more experienced in .NET rather than some of the more modern um, front-end frameworks that have come about over the past few years. We were using Angular for a while at work, so I have experience with that. But what I wasn't getting at work because of the, the role I had got to was experience with something like Vue or React. And so I thought, you know what, I do want to actually learn these front-end technologies. So I actually, there is a, a framework out there, React.net, which allows you to do server-side rendering of a React front-end, but from a .NET server, which is unusual, I know, um, but it was a good way for me to at least take my experience with .NET and um, bring in modern web front-end technology. My next plan would actually be to move to Next.js and probably use Vercel and that, that kind of technology, which is what our front-end teams at, at work are using. Um, it's just not something I've got much hands-on experience with. So, yeah, the Wallpaper website is, is kind of an opportunity for me to keep up to date with with the latest tech that are in the in the day to day job, uh, I'm I'm very aware of, but don't really get to play with. Yeah, that's really cool, and I mean, I'm sure that helps you interact with your engineers on a more personal basis too. Like, yeah, definitely, definitely. So I I did lurk your LinkedIn a little bit prior to this interview, and I saw that in the early 2010s you were a news reporter. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I. As, as kind of we, we were chatting earlier on, I've always been interested in tech. And when I was at university, I was very passionate about kind of what is out there in terms of new tech. And so I started writing my experience with the technologies that I liked and, and, and used um, and felt like I actually could contribute in some way to a, to a community. So I started writing about Windows because that's what I was using, um, some of the, the products that, that Microsoft were releasing at the time. And that got picked up by uh, a few of the, the kind of Microsoft-centric blog sites. And then I ended up being asked to actually write for some of them. So for a period of time, I was, I was writing about technology, which I, th- I found really quite, um, quite an interesting place to be and a job to be doing. Well, I think I felt, though, was it can be a little bit of an echo chamber at times. I always wanted to be able to contribute something new, have a new angle on something rather than just kind of regurgitating the same news headlines, which is really valuable to be doing, but I didn't find it as rewarding. So I ended up looking for other things that, that I could do within that space. So I ended up partnering with Microsoft, and um, it was SkyDrive at the time, was now OneDrive. And I actually partnered with the, the team at, at Microsoft Corp and did some kind of exercises with with readers of some of the sites that I was writing for and gathered feedback around what <clears throat> what the customer experience was like and what the pain points were and what would what would they do if they could have some new features um, so kind of partnered with Microsoft on that um, and it's because of that that I was then awarded MVP status by Microsoft um, which I've retained since 2012 so we're almost a decade now of, of having that which is that's really cool so do you have to like do anything to maintain and upkeep that you got to contribute something yearly yeah there's a lot of contribution back to the community and i'm my title now is on the windows insider side so it's kind of trialing like windows 11 and and all of the new things that have come with that which is really cool so trialing that feeding back about that but what i do a lot of is that the wallpaper site itself is actually geared towards kind of windows 11 and microsoft specific wallpapers but i also organize meetups usually in London, but I have done a couple for like Microsoft Build and, and things which have been in Seattle in previous years when we physically went to conferences. So I've organized meetups and things for for attendees of conferences and, and usually, again, they're quite Microsoft-centric, which have been really 
great to actually meet people and um, kind of just discover what 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 passions people have and why are they interested in in a particular technology? Why are they interested in Microsoft? Why are they attending the conference? Uh, so it's it's a fascinating opportunity to talk to people, which I think a lot of the virtual conferences is very hard to do networking in the same manner. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 kind of hard to like what do you private message someone in the zoom channel? Hey, you want to go into a breakout room? <laughs> like <laughs> chat yeah. about this further. <laughs> There's been but, a couple um, of ones that I've done where they're kind of almost like a speed dating network thing. So it constantly cycles. I think you get three minutes, no more than three minutes and you just kind of meet people who are there, um, yeah. which is interesting. Um, and then obviously if you, if you've kind of got something that you're really interested in and, and want to talk more on, then, then you go off and, and actually have a longer chat which is a in a virtual way is a a good way of perhaps trying to do some of the networking stuff that is much harder to do when you're not in person yeah i mean it definitely still works it just requires a lot more intentionality on the side of the organizers um to to make sure that that time is set aside and doing that yeah I do. I want to talk a little bit about Launch Darkly because we've uh, had John Cotamal on the podcast and uh, Edith, their CEO, also. And um, they're just. I think they're a super cool company. And I know that you recently wrote like a feature management book with them or about them. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So over the past few years, it's probably worth explaining how I've even come to to use Launch Darkly, which, uh, and then how I've. Got, got to write the book but um and let's also touch on what it is because i did not <laughs> <laughs> that's fine so you know it's probably five years ago i would guess it's a few years anyway ago the the company was looking to do some a b testing on on the front end of our website so we were exploring ways of doing a b testing and feature management is is the broad topic i guess for for a b testing um, and it was given to the tech department to evaluate what would be the best way of us being able to run A-B tests. Um, and there were a number of options available. Uh, Launch Darkly was ultimately selected because we found it very kind of unopinionated about the technology that can be used. And it wasn't only about running A-B tests. It was literally a very, very simple concept of effectively having an if statement with a distributed evaluation of whether you're going to get a true or false variable back now it sounds very simple and in reality it kind of is that simple the magic that happens with feature management and in particular launch darkly is how do you target that true or false or if you're doing multivariant testing how do you target which instance of a of a variation you want a single user or a single session to receive that's the the magic of feature management anyway we selected launch darkly at the time to do that A-B testing because we saw so much potential in that simple concept. And since then, we've gone and used feature management in in all of its various forms, and I can talk about many of them. We've used it in various ways across front-end systems, back-end systems, against migrations, against authentication systems. Different teams have different approaches to it. We've changed the way in which we follow kind of a Git flow model. We've we've become trunk-based very, very much in some teams. Um, so there's an absolutely huge way that we've, as a business, we have changed because of feature management. And the the book that I got to write comes about because um, I started working quite closely with Launch Darkly. I started doing conference talks and I wrote a few blog posts. And that actually got me 
a publisher reached out to me because of that and, and said that they were looking for a book on the topics of feature management and launch darkly and would I be interested in writing that book? Now, as it happens, that was kind of January of this year and the UK was in lockdown at that point. And I thought, well, Might better as well. way to spend lockdown. Exactly, what better <laughs> way to spend lockdown than write a book? So, um, yeah, no, I, I did that and it uh, came out in, in October. So, um, yeah, it's really cool. And, and actually, you mentioned John Credemore and he's written a forward for the book. So oh, cool. the book is not a launch darkly book, as in it's not by them. It does have their kind of approval and an endorsement so it's um it's really cool uh, and th they've been great they the launch darkly as you say they're a cool company and, and they've been really really supportive with the book and i ran a draft past them before we went to the publishers with it so it's technically correct there's nothing in the book that launch darkly would dispute um but it's full of examples and and kind of tips and tricks and things that i've learned and things that that are that I've learned from the hands-on experience with Launch Darkly and the way that we've used it in the real world, but also many other scenarios that we have thought about, questioned the pros and cons, which didn't work for us maybe, but it could work for other companies, other scenarios, other products and teams. So yeah, there's there's lots in there about different ways to use feature management. And it's a topic I could talk about for a long time. So that's really cool. Well, so <laughs> what what are some of those what are some of those examples that you've used feature management for over the years yes i think the um the so many different use cases for it the simplest is kind of what i would deem the switch statement um which is literally you're going to turn something on or off um right. often that could be called like a safety valve or a kill switch and the the common use case for that is where you've got some functionality within a product which is not mission critical but is useful to have and if there was a, a degradation of your service then you could turn that expensive feature off it's not it's not ideal but you know what you would rather have that turned off and your customers can still use the product um so turn it off so that's the, the kill switch model and that's nice it's a simple use in it generally it's either on or off for everyone and the implementation is relatively simple as well in that you're probably encapsulating your kind of optional implementation um, in that toggle um, and then the in the the if and else block, um, you've probably got nothing there because you you, you want to turn it off. There is an inverse pattern to this, which I don't have a good name for, but the idea being that you could have something that is generally turned off, and actually you can conditionally turn it on when there's a need to do it. So, one interesting example would be, let's say we wanted to a customer is complaining about an issue and we wanted to get more verbose logs for that customer to understand what is the journey that they're doing and where is this issue coming about we could actually turn on more verbose logging for that one customer and gather that extra telemetry on their journey and their experience we have also played around with serving unminified um yeah unminified javascript files for that customer as well in the same switch so we can get more human readable aspects of the, the javascript code that's running which again can be quite useful to us is is it an issue with the journey is it an issue with our code is it what, what's the problem that this customer is facing so on a, in a specific manner we can turn something on for a customer which is not about experimenting or anything like that which we can get to in a minute but it, it's it's a it's the kind of what I, it's an inverse kill switch i guess I think what's crucial with what I've just spoken there is, and what I touched on slightly earlier, was the magic of feature management is all about being able to target your 
true or false or variation to a specific customer um, or a segment of your users. And that really requires an understanding of, of the kinds of data that you will care about within the your application and the needs of when would you want a feature turned on or off. Um, and in this scenario, perhaps it would just be simply the username of the customer. They call up the call center, they say, oh, got a problem. Okay, what's your username? Cool, we can turn that thing on, let's get some more information. But there are many more complex reasons why feature management is very useful and why you want lots of information about that customer to come through to launch darkly. So if we now kind of move to running experiments, which I think is an extremely important way to deliver software, yeah, it's often uh, something that is a little bit harder perhaps sometimes to convince senior management to do because it can be wasteful at times, but it's not wasteful in the sense that you're squandering resource. It's that you might build something, find it doesn't work, and you need to be comfortable that you're going to get rid of that, that implementation. It's not work. So it's wasteful in that sense, which is why it can be difficult to get senior management to buy into that. But what it does is it ensures that every step that you take is the most valuable for your customers, tech you've got, and therefore the bottom line of, of the business. And when you're running experiments, there are so many ways in which you might want to segment that customer base. The simplest is just to do a kind of a, a percentage rollout. You really don't care too much about who the customers are. You just want to roll it out to 5%, 10% of your customers. See how that goes. Gather telemetry. If that's looking good, maybe roll it out to 50%. And as long as you've not degraded anything and, and you can see that the feature that you've got is, is working, then then great. And, and at that point of being at a 50% rollout, you're in a true A-B testing scenario, 50-50 split. That's kind of the, the sweet spot for it. You might not want to jump there, which is why I'm saying do 5%, 10%, because you kind of technically want to prove that your new feature works in a safe, controlled manner. So to do that, you, you don't necessarily need too much information about the customer. But let's say you wanted to go down a segmentation route and say, we know that we've got a really valuable group of customers, and then there are several groups of customers that are less and less valuable to us. Now you've got some options with this. How have you determined value? Is it about the amount of money they've deposited over their lifetime? Or is it about how much screen time they spend on your app? Or there's a whole range of different ways that you would deem your valuable users and customers. But if you've got a feature that you really wouldn't want to negatively impact valuable customers, then you'd probably first roll this out with your lowest value segment of customers. Whereas if you've got something that is a new feature that you're very confident with that it works and is actually designed to really get the most value out of your valuable customers, then you might want to put that experiment in front of your most valuable segment of users. So there are options available to kind of prove um, how a feature is going to perform with your users. There are many other ways that the, the, the customer base can kind of be sliced up to run experiments. It could be that you want to trial something on a particular device, could be Android versus iOS, in the web, or maybe it is a, a native app. In that case, you're probably not going to use it in quite the same way. But it could even be country. You might want to split the traffic for an experiment per country. Uh, and so there are uh, absolutely, well, it's kind of a limitless thing. Now, out of the box, LaunchDarkly has some attributes there, but they have many, many custom. Oh, there's the ability to do custom attributes. You can have many, many of your own custom attributes, which are going to be quite business specific or product specific. Um, 
and with that you've got the the magic there that's where it comes in is that ability to target who's getting what variation based on a whole load of targeting rules that will get set up in launch darkly so what's the process like of actually using LaunchDarkly in development? Is it like a plugin in your IDE that you're able to just start coding specific LaunchDarkly things in your code? Or is there like a LaunchDarkly um, like dashboard that you're working with or both? Like what, what does it practically look like? Yeah, so to use it, you, there's an SDK, and they've got many SDKs for most frameworks and, and technologies and languages. So um, there's an SDK that does some really clever stuff. If there isn't the SDK for the particular setup that someone wants to use, there is a full API as well that, that, that you can use. I would always recommend the SDK of using the API directly because the SDK does some clever um, client side. And I say client, not front-end browser client, but like in the server that it's yeah. running on. There's some clever stuff there. Um, so I'd always recommend using the SDK. So you install that, and that, that really gives you the ability to, to create a LaunchDarkly client in your app, uh, an instance of, of LaunchDarkly to, to connect to the, the service. And then what you're doing is kind of on every request, you would have a, a user object. Now, the user object is the, the bit where the magic source happens, where you put in all of the attributes about that, that user. I at times question the use of the word user because if you're dealing with a front-end application where you've got an actual user, it makes a lot of sense. But you could also be using LaunchDarkly on back-end systems where you're probably more dealing with requests or sessions rather than users. But the concept's the same. So you've got a user object. You spin that up and um, fill that with the attributes you need. And then the next thing you would be doing is creating um, or evaluating a flag. Now, the flag just needs a string and then the user object to be passed to it. The string is the key of the flag, which is when, as you say, is there a LaunchDarkly dashboard? Yes. And so the string is where you would create the, the feature flag itself in LaunchDarkly, and you would create it with the key that you want to use within your application. And it's within the dashboard that you actually set up the the targeting rules for that feature flag now i would say the best pattern to follow is that when the feature flag is um, returning false that is the default scenario within your application so the kind of the fallback scenario it's always worth bearing in mind that launch darkly it is a distributed service it could go down it hasn't really gone down for us thankfully touch wood but it could and so my gut view my gut feeling on this is always that your fallback position should be your known states which your current implementation you should always be happy that if all else fails what you're serving in your application is the known good state and it is within the true where, where only when launch darkly is returning true would you have your new implementation your untested untried code untested is i don't mean it's never gone through qa but uh, it's not it's not in front of every customer yeah yet. yeah and then in the launch darkly dashboard that's where you would also probably set up your the default rule will be to return false and only return true when the particular criteria are met of a user or a percentage of users and then they get the true variation being served back to your application so yeah, most of the the time with dealing with launch darkly is really spent in the, the the dashboard itself, the website itself, rather than in the using it within your application. Once you've got your feature flag kind of encapsulation in your code base, then you're writing your own code and you almost don't think about it too much. But it 
it changes the way that you think about writing code, delivering code, deploying it, and then releasing a feature. And when, when I say this, what I see it as is launch darkly or feature management it doesn't have to be launched darkly necessarily, but feature management in general allows us to decouple the deployment of software with the release of a feature. So we could be deploying all of the time, and some of our teams do. We will deploy all of the time, potentially broken code. But the broken code, as I say, is encapsulated within the feature flag in the true value of that feature yeah, flag, yeah. which we know is not what our customers are seeing. It's only going to be true if I've turned it on for myself. So if, if I can deploy that, then great. Once it's all good from, from a developer perspective, then maybe I'm getting the testers, the QAs to have a look at it. Does that work? Great. Maybe we give it to a performance testing team. Let's run it through them. Are they happy with it? Great. Let's give it to stakeholders. Let's get it signed off. It's all in our production environment. So the beauty here is we're not going through multiple steps of doing testing on a test environment and then getting to production. Obviously, that, that can work. In many places, that works very, very well. Um, but it can be quite cost ineffective to run something through a test environment and then to prod. Because either everything, if test and production are alike, then you've potentially got an unnecessary step. If everything's good, you, you're yeah. validating that on test, then getting it to production. Okay, that was an unnecessary step. Or you might have a mismatch between test and production. So you're actually getting a false positive with the test results from your test environment. You get it to production and then it doesn't work where we've got feature management and where we're going to purposefully deploy unfinished code to production, we have to be certain that we're not going to break production with that, which means it's relatively safe for us to do that because that's what we've always designed. That's our thought process. And it means that when someone's signing it off, they're signing it off on the real environment that is the best environment to sign things off on, which is a huge cost saving effectively and time saving. Um, so it's a really, it's a really interesting way to, to think differently about how we would deliver software than, than the traditional, put it through lots and lots of testing sign off phases. It, it doesn't work for every team, won't work for every product either. Um, some areas of tech that I would say that feature management and launch darkly don't work so well would be on databases where you might have schema changes and you, you need to kind of significantly change the structure of a database very difficult to do multiple versions of a database and flip between your A and your B. That's not really going to work. You can just spin um, up another one. <laughs> that's, Lots of money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could do that. And that's an interesting thing because then that touches on another use case of feature management, which would be the migration of services or, or hardware and doing that via feature management. So I guess let's take that example. I think it's a good example. You've got a new system, you've got a new database, et cetera, running. Um, and you want to cut off from your old one to your new one. If you've got your, your application that's currently calling that old system, you would in, encapsulate the call, the request to the old system in a feature flag and put your new endpoint in the true state of the feature flag. And then it's easy to turn that on for yourself again. Let's just check it that it works. Does the new system work as needed? And if it was that you had to do a kind of a big bang release with this, you, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do a 5% rollout because sometimes migrations need it all or nothing on the old to new tech. You can't be piecemeal. But again, you've, you've, you've got it. You've got a little bit of a, 
the safety net. And you can test it out for yourself and you you know that you, you're potentially going to have some side effects that you would need to remedy, but that's fine. You can live with that because it's just yourself or your testing team or, or whatever. But for the customer base, you can cut them all over, which is a really good way of doing it. There was also one thing that we did when we actually swapped our authentication system from a very old way of doing authentication to a nice, nice shiny new token-based web doing authentication. Um, we actually turned that on per country, um, which was a really good way for us to be able to do that because a lot of our stuff is kind of domain-specific. So obviously, off writing cookies against the domain is actually nice to go, well, here's country A, turn it on for this one country. Does it all look good in that one country, maybe a small country, maybe a lower-value country? Yes, it does. Cool. Then move it over and turn it on in, in kind of the increasing value, increasing size markets so yeah there's there's really cool ways of using it so what does your day-to-day look like man how 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 much time are you spending like thinking about this kind of stuff what what what's what are you mainly working on at your job so it's quite broad um so i've recently also taken over the remit of head of product and ui and ux as well so it keeps me very busy so there's a, a good degree of and I've, I've always enjoyed being a very, having a very product mindset anyway, even as, as head of development, because ultimately what we're working on as engineers or software developers has to work for our customers and has to work for the business. And so that does need a good product mindset. When we think about feature management and breaking a deployment from a, a feature release, that's improving the product uh, in terms of we're probably making it more reliable to do so. So the product's better, the customer experience is better. In terms of how my day-to-day looks, there's a lot of, I'm very, I'm always very focused on on the people. Um, I always try and be very empathetic. Um, I think that's crucial in, in kind of leadership and, and managing people. And so a lot of my time is is spent in one-to-ones or understanding the needs of teams and, and what are the challenges and, and how can we address this? Now, is it about prioritization of work? Is it about empowerment of, of people? Is it about, yes, we care about the customer experience, but are we doing the right things from a developer experience as well? Are we making sure that it's the, the technology that we're building Yes, it, it serves the business very well and we, we can move faster because of it. But are we doing that at the expense of our staff and, and people and degrading the developer experience? Or are we doing that in tandem with improving the developer experience? And that that's kind of crucial. Um, now, obviously, that, that moves beyond developer experience as well into any of the, the remits that someone might look after. It's all about what's the experience like for the people who we are looking after because it's all very good to have the, the best shiny tech, but you want people to really be passionate about what it is they're building. And that comes with pushing the boundary on tech, um, but but making sure that, that people buy into what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that's generally, I see it as, as the, the best way to kind of work with people and lead a team. Yeah, I mean, focusing on improving your employee experience is, only going to do good things for the customer experience at the end of the day. Absolutely. And there's been some interesting things with that. Actually, you've just, there was, when we've been doing a lot of our experiments, what we found was there was often kind of a lot of 
misunderstandings or, or assumptions being made by people that we would run an experiment, we'd put it out in front of the customers, we'd gather the data, we'd do the analysis, we'd present it back, and someone would go, that's not what I thought we were experimenting with. Now, that's quite frustrating. It's quite demoralizing, actually, for everyone involved, because everyone's like, oh, well, I thought we were doing a good job, but actually, we've missed the mark on this. And so what we ended up doing was thinking about what what is it we're trying to do when we're running an experiment and we chatted to a lot of people and in the the outcome of that was we put together a what we were calling a hypothesis specification which acts like a a, a web <clears throat> microsoft form um and um it's available to anyone in the business to submit a hypothesis to say hey i've got this idea for one of our products why don't we trial this but within it we're asking well, what's the problem we think we've got here? And, and what, in what way would this hypothesis help? What would a success metric of this hypothesis look like? And what would be the sample data set that we would look to run this experiment on? And then at the end of it, we get a lovely little kind of report out of it that clearly shows to everyone involved, this is what the this hypothesis is. And suddenly you've got something that's workable for, for the, the business stakeholder who looks after that product for the person who came up with the idea in the first place for our product management for our devs qas testers everyone can be on the same page with that and then that's so much better and it, it removes these moments of frustration and and maybe disappointment but it's certainly a better way to go so we use that quite a lot now yeah i mean setting proper expectations up front that's you got to do that in, in every everything you do in business sales or management like yeah that's pretty universal and super useful yeah but um you mentioned you spend a lot of time in one-on-ones do you have mm -hmm. any tips for like having a successful and productive one-on-one -on -one and avoiding wasting any time on, on with those so what i normally say uh, depends so Sometimes people want weekly ones, sometimes it's fortnightly. But what I always say to, to the people kind of in the very first one-to-one -one is this is your time and we'll use it however you want to use your time. Um, there might be some things that we need to do from a, a management perspective. The, the company requires certain things to be kind of communicated and things and that that's fine. But but on the whole, it's up to the the individual to kind of guide that conversation. And if if it's an update on on how they are personally, inside or outside of work, perhaps, then, then we'll have a conversation about that. If it's about their team, concerns about the team, then we'll have a conversation about that. Sometimes it's about the product and cool technology and how can we incorporate this into what we do. So it's, um, and we try and keep it kind of a mix of all of these things. I wouldn't ever want it to only be one type of thing that we're talking about. It should be a mix, but it's, to me, it's, I can go to, to my team whenever to kind of articulate what we need to be doing to meet the, the goals and, and needs of the company, that one-to-one -one time is a crucial bit of time in a week or a fortnight, whatever, where that isn't the agenda of the meeting. It's not about what are we trying to do as a company? What are the goals? It's how are we doing as people? How are your team doing? What do you want to do? What, what are your areas of progression that you want to do? Whether it's tech, whether it's personal as i say um and so that's that to me is what a, a good one-to-one -one is like um bit of mentoring bit of coaching bit of guidance and then just being able to have that rapport that's built up over time that 
there's a good relationship there. It doesn't need to necessarily be a friendship. And I think that can be crucial as well. It's you, not everyone needs to be your friend, but it needs to be a good relationship at least so that you can have those honest conversations when they're needed. Either way, nah, um, nah, it needs to be a safe space um, for that to happen. That's really solid. I really like how you start it by saying it's their time to do what they want with it. Um, and also putting it in their hands of how often they want it to happen. That, I mean, yeah, I think that that's very key for uh, making sure it's actually productive and good for your employee, um, a yeah, good use I, of their time. Absolutely. And I think there's <clears throat> one other thing that I will always endeavor to do. Sometimes it's very difficult, but I will nearly, I always try and keep the one-to-ones booked in when they are. I don't really like moving one-to-ones and I really don't like cancelling one-to-ones. Sometimes, as I say, that has to happen, but arguably the one-to-ones are the most important meetings of the week. Um, so I will always try and keep them as as locked in as possible. So it's I want to ask... Oh, just, on. just on that subject, uh, the, what I have found fascinating with returning to the office over the past few months is I think we've all got very used to when um, working from home, every call, every meeting is a confidential one generally, especially in a one-to-one scenario, you're only dealing with the, the other the person. What happens with returning to the office is you might not <clears throat> both be in the office, or you might not both be working from home on that day. So where I say I don't like moving one-to-ones, the only exception I have to that rule is if I've identified that we're actually not going to be in the same setup at the same time, I will move the one-to-one to, well, either I can find a meeting room in the office, but that's not always that easy, or it's a case of, well, look, I'm going to be working from home on this day. I know you are as well, so I'll move our one-to-one to that day so it remains a confidential call because what I wouldn't want to be is at my desk making it difficult for the other person to raise some of the concerns because they don't want my response to be overheard by other people in the office. So it's kind of being mindful of of the... You don't know what the, the person's going to want to say or chat about on the one-to-ones is being mindful that they can talk about anything and so if, it's not, if it can't be a confidential call, then that needs to be managed accordingly. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of the confidentiality as a benefit of work from home that we lose by returning to the office. Mm. But yeah, we always talk about how we lost like the water cooler conversations and encounters of the office moving to home. But that's, that's an interesting interesting take there. But I want to ask you a question that um, I got a really, we, we got a really great answer for on a, a recent episode. Um, so no pressure then. <laughs> <laughs> but so we were talking to uh, the CTO of Zscaler recently, which they're like a huge cybersecurity company that um, huge proponents of zero trust. And they actually, um, side note, that they have built like, so much infrastructure uh, in terms of like 150 data centers globally to help like speed up your uh, data going around the world. Instead of going around the world, it can just go to their data center nearby in a secure manner. And um, they, yeah, they've really thought about security from the ground up. Cool company, but their CTO Amit was an excellent leader and a big believer in the power of marginal improvements. He talked about how like if you improve at something by 1% every day, it's a huge amount over the course of a year. So that's been on my mind. And I'm curious, 
how do you carve out time for self-improvement and where, where are you looking to improve yourself? Yeah, I think that's a, a very good question. It can be very difficult to, to make sure that time is kind of there for us to, to reflect, to understand what it is that we should be improving on. And then once identified, actually finding the right resource and, and mechanism by which to, to develop. Kind of some of the things that I have tried to do, certainly over the, 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 with the pandemic, has been to be very mindful of the fact that we could lose ourselves with, with the distinction of work and home life kind of blurring hugely so i've tried to keep quite rigid working hours that doesn't always work but try to start kind of 8 30 try and finish no later than six one of the things that i found interesting early on was i don't think i missed the commute per se going on the tube to get to the office isn't enjoyable however there was an element of there's being a time when you're you've left your home and you're, you're gearing up for getting to the office and working. So you're kind of getting into a mindset that's a bit different from your home life. And then you have your day and then you commute back and you kind of perhaps do the reverse and reflect on your day at work and organize your thoughts. And then you start thinking about what you're going to do in the evening. So I actually haven't done it so much recently, but I, I have been um, doing a lot of um, kind of my own commutes in the morning, which is actually just taking a 20 minute walk before starting work and then doing a 20 minute walk after work to almost mimic those things and that might be listening to podcasts it might be listening to audiobooks whilst out on that walk but i found that quite a useful way of making sure i still had time to review the day reflect on the day plan out what i would be doing um, and then yeah if it's listening to audiobooks or podcasts is still an opportunity to have some thought-provoking things going on quite outside of my day-to-day -day, which i find they're always good for development as well um, and in terms of um, perhaps identifying areas for improvement. I do really enjoy listening to podcasts and audiobooks because I do find them to be quite, I think they're filling a thing that I always enjoyed with conferences, which I, as I say, I'm not finding the virtual conferences I find much harder to engage with than, than the in-person ones. Um, but is that idea of hearing people who are talking within a tech industry, but of technology or or the industry that the, the, the company is in or the experience that person has is quite outside of my own experience. So they're talking about things that might I could relate to, but I haven't perhaps thought about or experienced myself. Then I kind of identify areas of, wow, that's a fascinating take on that. That's something that I should be more aware of within the way I work and the way I interact with stakeholders or my teams or whatever it is. So that's, that's kind of what I, I quite like doing, um, which is very much on the soft skill side of things rather than the actual skill set of, of technology, which is its own challenge to keep up with the latest technology because there's always so much happening all of the time. Um, but that, in that regard, I would deem myself to not necessarily ever be the expert in the room on a particular technology, but know that within my teams, we do have the experts on particular areas of technology. So if we've got a need for discussing, okay, we've got this, this project, this objective, we need to, we need to deliver this outcome. Then it's about getting the, those experts in, in a room and discussing and relying on their expertise to, to do that. Although I, as I said earlier on, I do enjoy working with 
current technology in my free time, which is about as much as I can do to keep up with tech. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah, I, I set up, I set you up with a high pressure question there and you <laughs> delivered. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but um, all right. So before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on today that you want to make sure we get out to the world? Any extra shout out you want to make at the end here? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I think, um, I, as you can probably tell, I do enjoy talking about future management. So yeah. uh, we've probably done that one to death. And to me, um, how I am as a leader is a big deal for me um, and making sure that, that people feel empowered within the team. So being able to talk about that was, was crucial for me. So, um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's been a really, really good chat. I mean, it would probably be remiss of me not to say that the book is available on Amazon to buy right now and it's called there Future it Management with Launch Darkly. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really good. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.